You're listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. In this week's sermon, Lee Cadden preaches from John chapter 5 in our sermon series, Jesus, the Glory of Grace and Truth. We are in week five of a series where we've been looking at Jesus and the things that he says and Jesus and the things that he does and recognizing that both grace and and truth have this intersection in the person of Jesus, and the glory that happens in those moments is mind-blowing, and we've, we've been kind of building up and into Jesus' public ministry as he's been working towards just the unveiling of who he is fully. He told his mom at a wedding in Canaan, listen, my time has not yet come, dear woman, and there's just these, these moments, these glimpses, so to speak, of Jesus' divinity coming through the person of Jesus Christ. Well, if there was any kind of soft launch of that, it's not John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is Jesus kicking the door down and saying, this is it. Here I am. This is what the kingdom of God is like as I have begun my ministry now publicly. But I want to give us a little bit of background of where we've been and kind of those first four chapters of of John in this series that we've called um, just the idea of the glory of grace and truth coming to head in the person of Jesus. And what does that mean for us? How do we deal with what he says? How, what does that mean for who he is and how we worship him, but also how we respond as broken and frail people? In John chapter 1, John records that the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us, that we have seen the glory of grace and truth in this person, Jesus, who left eternity with the Father and then shows up and puts on a human body and descends down to the earth in the form of a baby born in a place called Nazareth. That's just an incredible moment of Jesus in his eternity, putting all of that on hold and coming into our world to bring grace and truth in a way that the world had never Scene. And as he's talking to those who would follow him, he asks them, what do you want? As they've asked him, Rabbi, Rabbi, these, all these questions, what do you want? And they said, well, you have the words of eternal life. You have all these things. And he tells them to come and follow me. There's this call to an invitation to these people to come and learn what the kingdom of God is like and what it will do in the lives of those who believe. In chapter 2, he changes water incredibly into wine at this wedding. And he tells, he tells them very truly, this is in chapter 3 as he's talking to Nicodemus. They've had this interaction after his ministry has begun. He had to have this interaction where Nicodemus is asking him all these questions because he sees something different in Jesus. And Jesus tells him that unless you are born again, that you will never see the kingdom of God. And so he begins talking about the kingdom of God, and at its very essence is a belief in Jesus and who he says that he is and who, as we're going to talk about tonight, who all of Scripture has been pointing to. And then in chapter 4, he has this interaction with this woman in the heat of the day at a well, and they start discussing where eternal life might come from, and they start discussing worship and what true worship is and all of these things. And Jesus says says to her that everyone who drinks the water from this well, this water, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. We talked last week about how God is a God who seeks worshipers, who chases after us, who longs for us to know him in truth and to worship him by the spirit that he's given us. Then at the end of last week's sermon, we talked about the man who traveled 
20, 25 miles just to see Jesus because his son was sick. And he said to him, well, if you would will it, he will be healed. If you will come. And Jesus tells him, go, your son will live. And it says that he took Jesus at his word and he began on his journey back home. In a sense, he believed by faith that the word of Jesus, as he had said it, would do the thing that Jesus said that it would do. As his ministry begins, it's the word of Jesus that came from the Father, that dwelled among us, that has the power to go out and save and redeem and bring back all that which is lost. And so in John chapter 5, we have this incredible moment where after some time after this moment of healing this man's son, it says that Jesus comes into Jerusalem for a feast. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 5, and we're going to work through all of it in sections. But starting in verse 1, it says this. Sometime later, after this man's son had been healed, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat, and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So Jesus goes up for this festival, and he goes into this uh, fairly uh, well-known pool of Bethesda. And the superstition of the day was that an angel... Uh, whenever the angel decided, would come down and stir the waters of this pool. And if you were the first one into the water after the waters had been stirred, then you would, in fact, be healed. And this is pretty common in terms of myth, myth or you know, lore of that day of recognizing that there is the, uh, some sort of supernatural going on and that water had a cleansing effect. And here's this angel who, whenever he wills, it decides to stick his finger in the water and twirl it around. And if you get in there first, you will be healed. In reality, the Pool of Bethesda sits on top of a subterranean river, and from time to time, bubbles would pop up, and when the bubbles popped up, these people who were all gathered around it would try to be the first one in the water, thinking and believing that they would be healed. Now, I'm not saying that God couldn't supernaturally heal people at the Pool of Bethesda based on an underground current, but what I am saying is that there were a boatload of people who put their hope in something that was not actual, who put their hope in something that was hypothetical, who put their hope in something that was rumored to be true, when in reality, as these people are going to come face to face with in the person of Jesus, there is only one source of healing, and that's Jesus. We talked last week about how we have all experienced situations in our life where we've prayed that Jesus would do this or that the Father would heal this, and there are certain circumstances and situations where he does, in fact, bring the healing in this life. But the promise of Scripture is sure and true and constant in that Jesus promises that there will be healing, whether it be in this life 
or the next. And those who are healed in this life are because Jesus acts in that way on their behalf. And I've witnessed people being healed supernaturally, and I've witnessed people go to be with Jesus and be healed supernaturally. And both of them are worthy of our praise and thanksgiving for Jesus in doing all that only he can do. But for this man, on that day, at Bethesda, surrounded by other people who were blind, who were lame, who were sick, who were hurting, he's been there for 38 years, hoping and praying that he'd make it into the water on time. I have not been alive for 38 years, though I'm close. I cannot imagine your entire life having been spent thinking that if I could just get this one thing, and Jesus shows up, and instead of lecturing him on some false assumption of where healing come from, comes from, or, you know, telling him, hey, you know, this is probably not going to happen for you. Sorry, bro. Or whatever it is, right? Like in this moment, when this man has no earthly help, when he can't even get to the water in town to be saved by this angel and healed by him, all of these things that he thinks he believes, Jesus, amongst this crowd of people, shows up and sees him and has compassion on him and comes to him and has what could have been one of the first conversations he's had in years, if not decades, at this moment. And he asks him, an incredible question in, do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? And the guy doesn't answer him appropriately, or at least at, at, surface, at you know, face value, he doesn't answer him appropriately. He says, sir, I have no one to help me in. Maybe it's this guy. Maybe he'll help me in. Maybe he's the one that I've been waiting for. And in this moment, he, Jesus tells him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And in an incredible moment of showing up in a way that only Jesus could show up, after 38 years of this man sitting by this pool and not being healed, Jesus sees him, takes pity on him, has compassion for him, reaches into his life, and asks him a question, do you want to be healed? And so when we see Jesus and this man in their initial interaction with one another, the first question I think Jesus is asking him is the same question that I believe he often asks us of, do you want to be healed? In other words, do you really want this thing to change? Or are you content with whatever this is? Or are you content with whatever the status quo is? Or even are you content with what this sin lies and doesn't quite yet fulfill on? Are you content to live like you're living? Or do you want to be made well? Do you want to have life, or are you content to stay where you are? Jesus' invitation to him is about so much more than his physical healing. It's about a reorientation away from things that are superstitious and grounded on a person who is real that he can touch that now sees him, asks him real questions, and says, do you want to be made well? And in a moment, he tells him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. If the first thing is Jesus asking us, do you want things to change? Do you want your life to be oriented around me? Do you want your life to be full and rich and abundant as I promised it can be? The second thing is this, that we only do so by the power of the word of God in our life. And when Jesus asks that question, he knows that the source of it is him. And so when he says, get up, it's the power of those words, not the man's will to decide that he wanted to do it or not. So hear me say that clearly tonight, that yes, there is a response that is necessary of this man, but the active agent, the power working in this man's healing is Jesus saying, get up and walk. 
The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and it has real power to save and restore and to redeem and to set free and to release from bondage and to heal. And the question is, do you want to be made well? Or are you okay to stay where Jesus finds you? The narrative goes on in this story of the Jewish leaders not really fully understanding what exactly is going on. When you see a person who's been paralyzed for 38 years and you see him walking, the first question should not be, why are you carrying your bed? Right? But in this incredible moment of religiosity, they see someone carrying a bed on the Sabbath. It's an incredibly Jewish thing in Jesus' day for them to have added just about 39, actually, 39 regulations on top of the commandment to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. They had made all of these religious rules about what you could and couldn't do. The idea of carrying a burden into the city or out of the city meant that you were probably making money, so you were working, so therefore you've broken the Sabbath. And they added all of these layers of things you could and couldn't do. And Jesus, over and over and over again, finds himself at odds with the religious leaders because they missed the beauty of the Sabbath by adding all of these things. So the story goes on in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom it pleases, he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So if you're looking for politically correct responses and you're Jesus, this is not it, right? Like you have already stirred the hornet's nest by breaking the Sabbath, supposedly, and telling this man to pick up your mat. You've been healed to go and rejoice and to go to the temple as he appropriately does and worship God for what he's done for you. Jesus takes the, the breaking, so to speak, of the Sabbath, and then he just adds on to it by this whole explanation, all of these claims about who his father is and how he sees his father at work, how he sees his father judging, but it's really him who casts the judgment. And just this on and on and over and over and over again claims of Jesus to have not only seen the father, but to be the son of the Father, and to have all of the authority in this life and in the next that only the Messiah, the one who was promised to come to save the Jews and to save all of the world, all of these claims all come out at once in this moment with Jesus and these Pharisees. And so I'd imagine if you're the Pharisees and you're trying to catch this guy in a moment breaking the Sabbath, and then he kicks this door open, it's over, right? Like, like game over, okay, you're, you're, you're nuts. This is crazy. You should absolutely be taken off the block, so to speak. And Jesus continues to make these claims, and he starts with the Sabbath when he tells them, listen, yes, my father rested, but he rested from creation, but he has continually been at work ever since then. And for me, here and now, in this moment, while I am doing the things that I'm doing, I am going to continue doing the work of compassion, continue doing the work 
of setting free, continuing doing the work of healing because I see my Father always doing those things. And so I'm going to continue that work because I can only do the things that I see my Father doing. The Jews had taken this Sabbath command, a command that was given by God for the people of God to orient all of their work week around who they are and whose they are first, and then to work out of a place of rest. We tend to have that backwards, right? We tend to want to rest from our work because we're exhausted, but the biblical mandate is that we would rest first in our identity in Christ and that our week would then flow out of that that we would begin a work week knowing that we have been together with his church, we have been together with his bride, we have worshiped him, we have rested well, and now we're ready for whatever this week may bring. And the Jews had added command after command after rule after rule after law after law, piling on this incredibly toxic religion and taking something that God had intended for good and turning it into dead weight in these people's lives. And so Jesus starts with a proper understanding of what the Sabbath is and what it's for. And then he just goes on making these incredibly extraordinary complaint, uh, th- these extraordinary claims about who he is and who his father is and what he's always seen his father doing. And this language would have been common to them because all throughout the Old Testament, specifically for this tonight, I want to point to Isaiah chapter 35. He's referencing scriptures like this, and the Jewish people would have known them full well. Starting in verse 5, it says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like deer and the mute tongue shout for joy, and water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Over and over and over and over again, all throughout the Old Testament, are scriptures like this pointing to the coming of Jesus. And here, in this moment, Jesus shows up, at this colonnade around the pool of Bethesda where he sees the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, and he begins to set them free as the Messiah promised he would do. Jesus shows up not just claiming to be the Messiah, but acting like it. He shows up, and the lame begin to walk, and the blind see, and eventually he will raise the dead, and he will raise all of us from the dead, and he will be the one who casts judgment. All of these are claims that only God could make. And here Jesus is making all of these claims in their presence. And so all of these statements, the extremes of Jesus's uh, just basic, um, what's the word I'm looking for? All of the basic just claims that he's making about himself in this moment, it puts people in one of two camps. You either believe that all of this is true, that everything Jesus is saying is in fact right, and he is the Messiah. Therefore, he is the son of God. He is the one we've been looking for. Or it's nonsense, and he's crazy, and a blasphemer, and none of this is true. And while it was true for them to have seen Jesus and to heard all of these things, and they had to decide in that moment whether these were true statements, and he actually was the Messiah, and he was the Son of God, or he was a blasphemer and crazy and deserving of death, we too, thousands of years later, have to read these words from Jesus and recognize that there is an abundance of grace in them for us in our life, as we'll talk about tonight, but there is also a wild amount of truth about who Jesus is and what he claimed while he was on earth. And we have to deal with it in the same way that they did in that day. Either all of this is true and all of it's worth me betting my life on or none of it is and this dude's crazy. We have to reconcile those ideas in our mind and in our hearts. But Jesus continues down this path with them. He's not done yet. And so in verse 24, he says this, Very truly I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life 
and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to give life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and they will come out. And those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. And I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me over and over and over again. Jesus saying, I've been sent by the Father. And those who believe in me will have eternal life and will not be judged, but will have crossed over from death to life. In verse 25, he says, the time has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The time has now come. Jesus' claims are unparalleled. There is no other religion ever in the history of mankind where someone has made the claims that Jesus is making here in this moment. But it is one thing for us to know and believe this in our head, right? To know that these things are true, that Jesus was a historical figure, that yes, he did in fact die on a cross. Yes, he was in fact buried in the tomb. But it is quite another thing to have heard those things and believe that you have been raised from death to life. A head nod and resurrection are not the same thing. Believing that Jesus is who he says he is in your mind and living like you believe Jesus is who he says he is are two very different things. And Jesus says that those who have crossed from death to life, who have eternal life, who hear his voice, knowing that they will live for eternity with him, that it is those people whom the Father is seeking. Believing wholeheartedly that he is who he says he is, that he has done and will do all that he claims he will do. And the question for them as they're watching this whole thing play out is the same for us as it was for the man laying by the pool. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to follow me? Because the time has come. It's now. It's here. It's today to respond to who Jesus is and all that he has done. And the command, if you believe, is to get up and walk, to get up and live, to get up and know that you have crossed from death to life, that it's not just knowledge, it's not just an understanding in my brain, it's an actual reality that takes place in our hearts when we believe, when we set our hopes fully on him, that we are raised from death to life. And the power that comes from the goodness of Jesus in the moment where he says, get up and walk, is out of this world. It's indescribable. Jesus tells the man when he sees him again in the temple, stop living in the darkness, basically. And he's not saying that this man's paralysis or his being lame was directly tied to his sin. But what he is saying is that if you continue down this path, then the result is death and brokenness and lostness. And Jesus tells him and everyone who would hear that if you will believe that it is the power of God that raises men from death to life, then you should walk in newness of life that he gives. His whole purpose in coming and overcoming darkness was that we might know that there is life, 
that it will be and can be found in him, the person of Jesus, that it's not in some superstitious, you know, kind of game we play out there. It's not in a certain set of religion or religious rules where we're constantly trying to make sure that we stack the deck on one side or the other or we make sure that our good outweighs the bad. It's not in any of those things. It's in confessing and recognizing that I was helpless, laying by a pool, dead, and Jesus said, get up and walk. And I believe that that is true for all of us who believe in him. Scripture over and over again tells us this story that everything that the Jewish people had ever hoped for now finds their fulfillment. The time has now come in this moment, in this person of Jesus. And his mission was to bring the dead to life, and they missed it. The indictment of the Jews is in the next section, starting in verse 7. Jesus says this, or sorry, starting in verse 31. If I testify about myself then my testimony is not true. Is that right? Yeah. Then my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have, sent, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. In this moment, Jesus is kind of laying out for them that there are, in fact, four different accounts, four different testimonies that if they don't believe his word, then they should take the word of these that are out there that have been long tested and proved even by them and their religion. And the first was the scriptures that all of them were pointing to Jesus. And then John's testimony of the one who would come before in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the one who would come is the second testimony. And the third testimony is the very works themselves. This man was lame and he walks. This person was blind and he now sees. All of these things are evidence of the work of the Messiah in their midst in this day. And then he tells them, if those weren't enough, then the Father himself testifies on my behalf. He takes kind of a legal course as he's dealing with these Pharisees in, in this moment. And then he says in verse 37, You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me. A little bit further on in verse 45. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed in Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? The indictment of the Jews was that they had an incredible amount of rules and an incredible amount of religion and an incredible amount of things that were keeping them going in terms of the religious leaders, not necessarily all of them in particular. But in verse 40, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And the accusation that he makes is very simple and clear. You have never seen the Father. This is a group of people whose entire profession was about knowing the Father. This is a group of people whose entire life was about constructing a system around what they said was true about the Father. And Jesus in this moment says, you've never seen the Father, and you do n- don't know the Father because you don't know the Scriptures. 
You don't know what they actually say. You don't know what Moses was talking about. You don't know the day that Abraham hoped for. You don't know the day that King David rejoiced in that would come in the future. You don't know the Father, and you refuse to come to have life. The answer on their end when Jesus asked, do you want to be well, was no. And Jesus tells them over and over and over again, how are you going to believe then what I say? If you've never seen him and you don't know them, how are you going to believe what I say? Because you're so caught up in your religion. You're so caught up in your rules. You're so caught up in the system that you've created that you've missed the big picture. You've missed all of the text, all of the promises, all of the prophets, all the things that were pointing to this day. The time has now come and you refuse to come to me to have life, he says. There is a very real difference in keeping all the rules and religion. There is a very real difference between that and knowing Jesus. And Jesus' call, Jesus' invitation, Jesus' question, do you want to be well, is the difference. The connection between moving from a list of rules to moving to life, going from death to life, is in our answer to that question, yes. Regardless of everything in this life, regardless of all the false promises, regardless of all the emptiness that this world tells me I might find, if I can just pull my life together, the answer, Jesus, is yes, because I'm tired. I can't do this like I thought I could. And we have to decide tonight and in our life in general whether all of these things that Jesus is saying, they're either true or they're not. And if they're true, then they're worth betting our entire life on. And if they're not, then we're to be pitied among more people than we can even think of or count. But Jesus asks the question, do you want to get well? The time has now come. Come and follow me. This invitation over and over and over again to orient all of your life, not just the comfortable parts, not just the easy parts, not just the places that everybody else already knows about, but all of the places of your life. Do you want to be made well there? And if so, come, for the time has come for you to receive life. I was at soccer fields earlier this week. I don't know when it kind of rained. It like barely rained for like five seconds. Um, and they canceled soccer practice. It was the weirdest thing. But we're at the soccer fields, and it's me and my four-year-old and his cousin, who's also four, and I coach, yes, I coach four-year-old soccer. It's awesome. You should come watch if you've never seen four-year-old soccer. But we're out there, and practice is canceled, and it starts to rain, and I'm like, yes, it's raining. And, and then it stops, and I'm like, oh, it stopped raining. But in this moment, my son, when we get in the car, he goes, I hate rain. And I was like, you hold your tongue, boy. But then I asked him, I said, Amos, why do you hate rain? He goes, I just hate rain. I'm like, all right, well, we need to redefine what hatred actually is and how you understand that, but you're four, so let's just go with it. I said, Amos, why do you hate rain? And he said, I hate it because it canceled soccer. We can't have soccer practice because it rained. And in the same way, I think about how sin in our life, sin in this world, is something that, yes, it is a big deal, and yes, it is something that Jesus came to deal with, but what it's done, the effects of sin, are that it has separated us from what Jesus always intended, and that is life in him. And so while I didn't have that full conversation with Amos about what true hatred is and how we should hate the things that God hates and not hate rain because rain brings life and this is really good, but in that moment I realized that I should only always ever hate sin in this world because the fruit of sin in this world is people laying by a pool being paralyzed for 38 years. 
or in my own life kind of having this place where I'm not willing to confess this broken place or this broken place or I want to keep this hidden or this hidden. Sin is the thing that causes me to stray away from Jesus and to put my eyes and my hopes on me. And so my thought for us as we kind of wrestle with who Jesus is and what he's done is the fir- and, and, and first is this, does my sin grieve me or does your sin grieve you? Is there a thing in your life or is there a place in your life or is there a broken part of your life where you're just absolutely torn up about it because it's not given over to the lordship of Jesus? And I think we all have those moments throughout our life where we have to ask the question, God, I don't really know why this doesn't grieve me, but Jesus, I want it to. Whatever this thing is that's separating me from you, I want it to grieve me because it grieves you and it costs you your life. And that's the thing that I think Jesus is saying to the man when he sees him again in the temple the second time. He's like, see, you're well. Holy smokes, this is amazing. It actually worked. You're actually walking. You actually have life. And in that moment, he tells him to stop sinning or else something else worse might happen to you. And I believe there's a warning in that for all of us that we should look at our sin in the face and go, man, this cost Jesus his life, and I hate it. I hate this thing. And so, Jesus, would you come And would you make me well? The answer, Jesus, when you ask, do you want to be made well in this place? The answer is yes, because I can't fix it. I can't do it. I can't undo this thing. Jesus says, do you want to be made well? Because the time has come. And I believe the question for us is, are we just content with whatever the thing is in our life? Or do we hate it and want so much for Jesus to make that whole and healed that we might walk in newness of life in that way. So the first thing that as I was thinking through all of this for me personally after sitting in the soccer fields with Amos and him being upset about the rain and me rejoicing in the rain is first and foremost does my sin grieve me to where I want to say yes Jesus. Yes I want to be made well. Yes I want to be done with this thing. The second thing that Jesus started to put on my heart was this that Jesus sees me. Jesus sees you. And so the question is do you see Jesus seeing you. Jesus shows up at the pool of Bethesda where all of these people who are all broken, who are all hurting, who are all in need of being made well, and he sees the person that nobody else has seen for 38 years. And I believe that if Jesus can see him in that moment, then he can see you in yours. He can see you in your brokenness. He can see you in your hurt. He can see you in your pain. And I think the question is, do you believe that he sees you? And do you hear his voice? He sought out this man at the pool, and I believe in the same way he seeks us out and asks, do you want to be made well? The last thing that Jesus has just kind of been stirring in me is uh, an invitation uh, that basically says, will you come to me again and again and again and again? Will you come to me that you might have life because the time has now come? When the kingdom of God is breaking in, it is at hand. Jesus says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. It is here. It is now. And that is an incredible reality that we still live in that day. So will you come to him again and again to have life or will you refuse to the way that they did? Will you come to Jesus who is the only one who fulfills the promises that he makes? Who is the only one who can give life? He is the only one who can set free He is the only one who can redeem because he is the savior of the world. All of these things that Jesus said about himself are absolutely true. And we have to set those down over our life and look at it and go, man, I don't don't believe that. At least 
that my life in this area doesn't look like it the way that I want it to, or it doesn't look like what Jesus is talking about here. And so, yes, Jesus, the answer is I want to be free. I want to be made well. And so those are the things for me that as I work through this passage of Scripture, and really all Scripture is like it, where Jesus makes these just extraordinary claims, and he promises to set free and redeem and restore and to make well and to heal and to make whole. Do I believe that those things are true, and will I come to him to have life? Do you believe that he sees you, and do you want to be made well? Amen. Let's pray. We're so glad you listened to the Grace Auburn Church podcast. There's so much happening in the life of our church, and we could not be more excited about all that God is doing. For more information about ways that you can connect within the life of our church, go to our website, www.graceauburn.church. Thank you.